We are in the middle of a series called uh, Broken Colors, uh, where we're, we're pulling from the lectionary, which is a very old, nerdy Bible book that kind of breaks up uh, different scriptures in different places, but brings it all together so that every morning we come together, we're kind of pulling from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from the poet, uh, poetry sections of the Bible to the, uh, like, the literal sections of the Bible and everywhere in between. Um, and what we're doing with that is we're actually juxtaposing that or supporting that with what's going on in the world today, which, boy, oh boy, did we have a week. Um, so, I wanted to, uh, just d- disclaimer here, um, I wanted to talk about, and we'll, we'll touch on Texas and Santa Fe High School just a little bit, um, but I worked, uh, we're going to talk about Jerusalem, which is just as cheery uh, and just as controversial, but um, I wanted, to, I wanted to work really hard on that, but I, uh, next week, and I know it's Memorial Day, so there's going to be a, a small crowd here, um, this is a perfect opportunity for you to share the podcast that we're going to do, because we're going to take a whole week and just talk about violence, um, and more so, we're going to talk about the myth of redemptive violence, which means that violence just begets more violence. It's never something that solves a problem, it's just who can hit back harder to the point of death, which is just insanity. And in the nation and in the world that we're living in right now, we got to talk about violence inside the church thing. So next week we're going to talk about that. We're going to dedicate our whole week. It's not even going to be a Broken Colors week. It's just going to be a special one-off. Where we're just going to talk about violence um, and, and all the stuff that comes with that. So uh, if you're going to be here, bring a friend to that. I've, I've already started working on it. We, like, I've spent pretty much all of yesterday outlining and writing, and I think it's going to be something really special. So um, bring people to that. And if, uh, if you can't be here, which we know... So it's already, the summer months are upon us, so it's going to get crazy, but uh, that's a good opportunity. Either subscribe to the podcast or, or share that. Um, but yeah, okay, this week, let's talk about Jerusalem, because I really want to keep my job. Um, Jerusalem uh, was all in the news this week, and uh, talk about a heated discussion. There's probably no more politically charged thing that we can talk about than Jerusalem. When you say the name Israel, when you say Jerusalem, the minute that comes out your mouth, it's politically charged in some kind of way. We all have an opinion on it. We all have uh, our own sort of version of what should go down there. And uh, like this morning, which is going to be completely unique, um, we're going to nail it, and we're going to fix all the world's problems. It's going to be awesome. Um, But here's the deal. This week is Pentecost, which is the birthday of the church. So this is the moment um, in the scriptures where the Holy Spirit comes and fills uh, the space. There's fire. There's speaking in tongues. There's all sorts of fun, funky stuff in there. We're going to get to all of that. Uh, but guess what our, our Pentecost comes from? A Jewish holiday that is also called Pentecost. It's also the, the, uh, the festival of the first fruits. And all of these center in where? Jerusalem. Our first Pentecost happens in a room in Jerusalem, spreads out into the street, and then spreads to a movement outside of Jerusalem. And the Jewish festival of the first fruits happens in Jerusalem. It's a pilgrim festival, which means that three times out of the year for Passover, that uh, festival of the first fruits and Sukkot, you would travel from wherever you were in the known region and come to Jerusalem and be at the temple for this holiday. So we have a a Jewish holiday that coincides at the same time as a Christian holiday, all inside Jerusalem. So this is still a pilgrimage holiday, so people are still coming to Jerusalem, even now, as we speak, this week and this Wednesday, to celebrate the Festival of the First Fruits. Now, that's not, like, coincidental enough. Let's throw a whole other faith tradition in there. For Islam, this week is actually the beginning of Ramadan, which is where uh, Muhammad actually gets the inspiration and gives the people the Quran. Now, what's really interesting about that is that is also a pilgrimage holiday. So you have everyone coming into where their temple in Jerusalem. So you have all of this crazy stuff coming in. And what's even crazier is all three faith traditions, today we're celebrating the, the stuff that was revealed and poured out. 
The Festival of the Fish Fruits is something you, you would read the Book of Ruth in, and then you would celebrate the birth of King David and the death of King David, because he was born and died on the same day, according to legend. And then you would also celebrate the giving of Torah. This is where we celebrate Mount Sinai and where Moses gets the grand revelation and gives out Torah to the masses. This is also the same thing where they give out Koran to the masses. And for us, this is the outpour of the Holy Spirit. It's all about revelation. It's all intertwined. It's all happening in the same physical space. And to put something even more crazy on top of that, in a layer, as our embassy moves, it is also the 70th birthday of the nation of Israel. All of this is happening, and it's a powder cake. There are, there are three different, four different, five different, just all these different angles and all this stuff going on. And whether it was the right move or not, when we moved, we were the match, right? It went off. 60 people lost their lives in Gaza. 60 people. Like hundreds more injured. And on top of that, in the same very week, we have 10 people that we lost at Santa Fe High School in Texas. So quick disclaimer here, I am not a political expert by any means, and I know little to nothing about uh, like Middle Eastern politics and what's going on there and how confusing it is. I watched a lot of videos and read a lot this week to just try and figure it out, and I was like, nope, I'm not going to get it. <laughs> because it's just, there's so much going on and so many players, so much. So I'm not going to try and prove anything politically this morning. I'm not going to try and, and give you my ideas for how we can fix this thing. But what I do want to do is create sort of a biblical picture of what Jerusalem means, and especially on a day like Pentecost, which is a huge deal for us. This is what sets us apart as Christianity and not just in the Jewish faith. So like biblically, what does this mean? Biblically, what is the deal? Why, why are we so focused on Jerusalem as a city? Why are we so focused on Israel as a nation? Is it in the Bible? How do we prove that? All of that kind of stuff. I'm going to give just sort of a, a brief outline of how that goes down. But to do that, let's read the passage in the book of Acts, Acts 2. This is a lengthy passage, but uh, hang with me. We'll get through it. We, it's going to be our whole sort of canvas uh, for the morning. So when Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, I want you to hang on to that first line. That's going to be like the whole sermon. So just hang on to that first line. Uh, we'll come back to it. Suddenly, a sound from heaven, like a howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be the individual flames of fire all lighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were pious Jews from every nation under uh, heaven living in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, look, aren't all of these people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How can each of them hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, this is going to be a whole list of things I can't really pronounce, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. goes on. I'm not even going to try those first two. Egypt and the regions of Libya, bordering Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, and we hear them all declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. They were all surprised and bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them, saying they're full of new wine. Is that the last one we have there, Sean? Okay, cool. It goes on to say, uh, Peter goes, no, 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 it's, it's not that we're drunk, it's only 9 a.m. So he gives a quantifier like, we're not drunk yet, it's 9 a.m. Anyway, so that, that can't be what's happening, what's happening here. There's a couple things to unpack in that. And first of all, there's the first line, but let's deal with one thing, really weird thing in the middle. Why did he list so many nations? 
in a book, like, so Luke and Acts are written by the same person. They're actually kind of one book fused together, and Acts is just sort of part two of Luke. And what we know about Luke and his authorship and the way that he would write was it was immensely conservative with the amount of words that he would use. In fact, he would use these things called type scenes or remezes, which is a hint, and it would be like this loaded sentence that anyone living in that day would go, oh, I get the context here, and he'd bring that in. So he's extremely conservative with how many words he wants to use in any given moment, and yet here, he just goes on this litany of different nations and different people, and says every nation under heaven coming in. So basically, what this is meaning is most of the developed world at that point, if you were a Jewish person, you were coming into Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem's population at that point would actually quadruple inside. It was total and utter madness in this place. But what it's trying to say is, for the first time, this kingdom is getting bigger. After this, 3,000 people get baptized. Now, how do we go from, they're speaking in tongues, right, and they're doing all this crazy stuff, and people hear it in their own language. Quick, quick quantifier here. I'm all about um, some funky speaking in tongues thing. But notice that in this passage, the whole point of speaking in tongues is a unifier. It's so that you can actually hear something in your own language. Now, when we get funky Christian and we speak in tongues and it is not a unifier, that ain't it. That's just a quick freebie disclaimer. I can probably get in trouble for that. But anyway, um, Acts 2, 3,000 people. How do we go from them speaking in tongues, hearing their language, to 3,000 people going, yes, this is it. I'm in. And embracing this new way of life. In fact, the way of Jesus. Investing themselves in the idea that the Messiah has now come. How did we flip the switch just in this little passage? What happened? How did we get there? So to get there, we're going to talk about um, type scenes. We're going to talk about wells. We're going to talk about Ruth. We're going to talk about the expectation of something new. We're going to talk about sports, which is going to be great because I'm going to do it. And then Texas is a type scene. Uh, We're going to talk about who Acts was written for. We're going to talk about um, a time I invited an entire wedding over to someone's house. Uh, We're going to talk about um, how we're still in the same spot. Fire, a glory problem, a pilgrimage, violence, fire, and brimstone. But before we do that, I would love to just pray over our time this morning. Um, because that's a doozy. So let's, let's, let's pray. God, thank you for um, just allowing us to gather, allowing us to talk about uh, these things, these troubling things, these crazy things, these things that we can't seem to figure out. Um, but Lord, we trust that you're in all of this and that you're moving, and that you're acting, and that uh, you're, you're causing us to move and act because we are called to be your hands your feet. So I pray over our time this morning that you bless it. Amen. Um, so let's go back to that very first line. I think it's the next slide, Sean, in there. Yes. Okay. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. So at first, this could just be like a setting line. We'd brush right past it and we get to the good stuff, right? However, this first line is loaded, 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 loaded with meaning. Why does it say Pentecost? Why is it giving us the time why is it telling us that all of them are together in one place? So what this is, is it's a, it's a device called a type scene. And a type scene happens when we see repeats in Scripture. If you read through the Bible, you'll begin to go, like, why is the same thing keep happening over and over and over and over and over again? Why are we at a table again? Why are we at a well again? Why are we at a gate again? Why is there all this repetition going back and forth, and wh- why can't we just tell a new story? Right? Why do we have to quantify this with everything? And the reason is, when you give a place, this is like a you are here moment in the mall for the Bible, right? You are here, they're all together in one place. The only other time we saw that with all the disciples together for the last time was at a little thing called the Last Supper. 
And what was funny about the Last Supper is that took place on a different festival, the one 50 days before, because penta means 50, count off 50. That happened 50 days before, and they were all gathered for the Last Supper, but it wasn't the Last Supper then, it was Passover, right? So now we find ourselves at a new festival, but we're still gathered together. There's an expectation of something new. Jesus shares them with communion with them. He invents this way of them coming to a table and getting to know each other, and every time they gather, to remember me. But so they're, they're back again, and they're in a room, and they're there at Pentecost. And Pentecost has its own loaded meeting because there would have been certain things that they would have read, including the book of Ruth, but they would have been reading stuff and celebrating this festival as they're all gathered together in one place. So there's this expectation of something new. There's a type scene. Now, type scenes, we're going to talk about that. We have to talk about wells, which is a fun subject because there are so many instances of people in the Bible coming up to wells. The hero's journey kind of looks like this in the Old Testament. You get a word from God, the hero goes out and journeys and finds himself at a well, and this literally repeats itself four times with Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Moses. They all go to a well, and there's a betrothal scene. So whenever we get to the well, starting with Abraham, Abraham gets to the well and sets this type scene thing up. So he gets to a well and finds his future bride there, and he draws water for her, and that signifies this is the betrothal thing. And then what would happen is the wife would then run back to her family, and there'd be a negotiation, and they'd have a meal, and they'd sit down together. And this happens over and over and over and over and over again. And then we get to uh, Isaac, who sends a servant, which is very kind of Isaac-esque, but the same thing happens there. And there's little tweaks that they tell about the character every time you're at a well, and this type scene, which is the same scene, but with these little tiny quirks and tweaks, you learn about that character. Jacob, who ends up wrestling with the divine, one of my favorite characters, we talk about him almost every week. When Jacob wrestles with the divine, when he gets to the well for his betrothal, he has to wrestle with a rock to get it off of the well, signifying this guy is going to struggle a whole lot in life. When Moses comes to the well, he comes and he finds his future bride there, and he not only draws water for her, which is part of that ritual, but then he also draws water for all of the camels and the livestock nearby. And what's really fascinating about that is Moses' name means drawn from water, and so it signifies that this man is going to be the sustainer of life. He's going to bring freedom into things, and we can all tell that from this strange device known as a type scene at a well. So whenever there's a well, pay attention. Like, what's quirky about this? What's different than the last time? So the type scene sets up an expectation that something is going to change. This is the same thing. We've been here before. We've seen this before. But something is going to change. Now, it's entirely fascinating. is because this is Pentecost, and they would have read through the whole book of Ruth, which is a really quick book. It's only four chapters long, 85 passages in it. They would have read through that whole story. And why did they read through that whole story? Well, the fascinating part with Ruth is a really amazing book in the Bible. We don't have time to go through everything in it right now. But basically, Ruth is the hero's journey, that same thing. There's even a well seen in this book. But this time, it's not a patriarch, it's a matriarch. This time, in a culture that puts women down, that says you don't even count when it comes to a census, what the Jewish tradition did is they said, no, we're going to include an entire book where it's not a man as a hero, but it's a female. And so it flips the whole thing upside down. And then Ruth, who is a Moabite, gets married, has a son named Obed, and that's, that son Obed has a son named Jesse, and that becomes the father of King David. And then when we open up our New Testament, we see this genealogy thing. We see that somehow Jesus is connected to the line of David. And so we have the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus 
who flips the whole thing on her side. One of the most famous verses from this book is this. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And they would have read this passage right before 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Are you kidding it seems like someone had an awful lot of help writing this, right? It's just crazy to see how interconnected this all really is. It's insane. A type scene brings up an expectation that something new is going to happen. Think of any sporting event in the United States, right? Any sporting event that happens, if it's televised or if you go to the game, it's going to start with the national anthem, right? And that's a whole other political vibe there, but we won't get into that. But national anthem starts, and there's, we've seen this before. We've been here, right? We know this is part of the rhythm. This is what happens. We've been here before. But we never roll into that expecting everything to go the same way it did last time. It'd be an awfully boring thing to watch, right? If the thing went exactly the same. No, when we get there, we come with the expectation that something exciting and new is going to happen. So when they put this first line in the, in the Acts narrative, in the Pentecost thing, they're saying, you've been here before, but just wait. Something crazy is about to happen. Something new is about to move forward. There's always an expectation of something new. And unfortunately, this week, and in the world we're living in, you know, when, when I got the update on my phone that, like, you know, uh, another school shooting had happened, I was in the middle of working on this type scene thing, and I just realized, oh, Lord, like, this is a type scene. We've been here before. How many times have we been here before? In terms of mass shootings, over 100 this year. But the beauty as we study scripture and we engage in this life with Christ is when we see this stuff and we say, hey, I've been here before, what we should do is have the expectation of change. Something can change. Something crazy and awesome can happen. That this place can look more like heaven, but we have to jump in and engage with that. This can't be a type scene. And what's really interesting is as much as we're grieving in our country right now, as much as we're hurting, as much as it seems to just be a constant barrage of pain and violence and hurt, the book of Acts was actually written to a very similar group of people who were grieving the loss of not only their temple, not only their religious identity, but their nationality, their family members, everything. So this book... Uh, is written in, in the 80s, and I'm talking like the OG 80s. This is 80 CE that Acts is written in. Um, and that's a really charged hit time in history. Basically, just 20 years before, Nero had killed a bunch of Christians. I'm talking a humongous amount of Christians. It had Christians turning on each other, saying, I'm not a Christian, but they are. Because the deal was, if you said that you weren't, you had to point to someone else to say they were, and that's the only way that it would save your life. So you had people, family, turning on family, brothers, turning on brothers. Just this wacky, wacky world. That happened 20 years ago, but 10 years ago, in the year 70 CE, Rome gets really pestered by these, these pesky Israelites, these people that won't stop rebelling and revolting. They're zealots. They're just constantly at war with Rome, trying to get them out. And so what they do is they just go, fine, just level them. And they roll in. 
And they don't just level the city, they do it really, really awful. Because it just seems like Rome had it all figured out when it comes to how to completely demolish a people's spirit and culture. What they did is they cut off supply, trade routes, and starvation took over the city. And then people began to huddle inside of the temple because that's where all the resources were. And they were starving to death inside of this temple. And then to add insult to injury, the Roman soldiers dressed up like the Jewish people and came into the temple like they wanted to make a sacrifice. And then they drew their swords and they slaughtered everyone in there. Everyone. And the really important part about that is that the high priests, that would have been the only place they would have been. All of the high priests are wiped away. Every single one of them. And so you have a, a people and a faith tradition of like, where do we go from here? Who's, who's our leader? What, like, what do we follow now? Like the temple doesn't exist. And with these pilgrimage holidays, where do we go? Do we go back to the temple? We're not allowed to go there. It, it doesn't exist anymore. And on top of that, it's just, it's just a really, really painful time. I lost family in that attack. And we've been dispersed in that attack. We lost our home. Now we're in a foreign land. I don't even know what to do. This is the year that, that Luke is writing the book of Acts to these people. And to make matters worse on top of that, uh, this is where the Pharisees kind of come to power. The reason we see the Pharisees so much in Luke and in Acts and in, in just the Gospels in general is because it was a really charged time. Right as this was happening in the middle of the 70s, the Pharisees who were never inside of the temple but outside of the temple, and they were the guys that were like, we're not doing it right, so we need to move outside and we'll create our own little temple systems. They see this as a perfect time to rise to power. And this all looks like a power grab, but in fact, they were really earnestly trying to save their tradition. They're going, okay, the temple's gone. What do we do? I, I need to save what's happening here. We have to get more like together. We have to remain in our identity. We have to hold on to our faith. We have to hold on to our traditions. And at the same time, there are these pesky Christians who are running around just telling anybody and everybody about their faith and going like, no, you can come in too. You can come in too. You can come in too. That was the Christian way. Like, if you hear about this, this Jesus Christ guy, like, I can't believe it. you gotta, you got to hear this. And by the way, you can come and you can be in this tradition too. And the Pharisees go, absolutely not. So around the year 85 CE, they go, whatever sect in, in, in Judaism, because there were a bunch of sects, it's like a bunch of denominations, whatever ones proclaim that the Messiah has already come, those are out. Those are out. We can't deal with that anymore. We have to stick to our own traditional way. Now, it's partially because the Christians kept making it so difficult when other people would be able to come in, they felt like they were losing their tradition, which is something that I can speak to because I have a long history of over-inviting people to everything. Um, it started when I was a kid. It was my seventh birthday party. I had been homeschooled uh, before in like second grade. My mom couldn't deal with it anymore, so she threw me into a, a public school, and I loved it. Like I couldn't believe it. I got to like hang out with friends and everything, and like there were there were constantly other kids around me. I was like, this is this is awesome. Um, and my birthday party was that afternoon, and my mom is very very meticulous. Like if if you wanted to invite a friend over, you need to like schedule that out like a week. Like it wasn't like if you brought someone over, she'd be like, oh no no no, <laughs> they're not even coming inside. And I knew this, but it was my birthday party, and I 
come to find out that a lot of the kids in my class had not been invited to my birthday party. And I was talking about it. I was like, my party's later today. I can't believe it's going to be so much fun. And they're like, oh, well, I didn't know you were having a birthday. And I was like, oh, well, you can come. And then just you can come, and you can come. And it ended up that I brought about 10 kids from the neighborhood back to my parents' house. My mom, my grandma actually opens the door and goes, oh, no, because she knows exactly what my mom is going to do. But 10 kids are there. My mom freaks out. And I say, I'm sorry. Fast forward many, many, many years uh, later, it's, uh, I mean, I'm at a wedding. Um, this is actually a fantastic story. I didn't know that I was the best man at this wedding until the day of uh, the rehearsal. So I got there, and my friend goes, uh, they go, okay, get the best man, and uh, uh, what do you call the bridesmaid, the maid of honor, uh, best man and maid of honor come forward, and I just sit in my seat, and then he just casually turns around and goes, and I was like, wait, what? And he goes, you are the best man. I was like, were you holding this as some sort of like grand reveal thing? Anyway. I figured out I'm the best man. All I had bought him were a couple board games for his wedding, and so I called Chels instantly, and I was like, buy anything on that registry. Get the Blu-ray player. I don't care what it is. We're, we're, I'm holding the rings in my hand. So anyway, we're there, uh, and I have to make a speech, but I prepared absolutely nothing, and so they throw me up on the stage, and they just go, hey, you, you'll figure it out. You talk a lot. Get up there. So I go up there, and I, I guys, I'm, I'm not done trying to stay humble here, but I really nailed it. I don't know what happened, but I, I, I blacked out for a second, and everything went great, and people were laughing, and they clapped afterwards. Like, who claps after a best man speech? They're clapping, everyone's having a good time, and I just feel full of confidence, just like, oh, yes. And so it went so well that they, they said, well, we need a couple more announcements, like just some housekeeping things. We're going to do a champagne toast. Would you mind just introducing those? And I was like, heck, yes, I will introduce those. And then the bride's mom comes up to me, and she says, okay, yeah, and make sure to spread the word um, that uh, we're having the after party at our house. Now, I took that to mean spread the word in the same way that they were like, announce that as the other things. And so I walked on stage and I announced to the entire wedding, and this is a huge way, they just did it in a church, but there were hundreds of people there. And I just announced, oh, by the way, after party at the Foxes, they told me to let everyone know. <laughs> Get off the stage to Mrs. Fox, who I grew up with and was mortified of, just white, like white with anger and rage. I had to buy a lot of beer because those people indeed showed up. <laughs> so lots of beer was purchased. Now, fast forward uh, to Easter, the first Easter we had at Resonate. I, we, we, like this was a, about the size of Resonate when our last Easter was happening. Uh, we weren't that big. And so I just said to Charles, how cool would it be if we invited everyone to our apartment for Easter brunch afterwards. And she's like, that sounds great, because it's a very manageable crew. Now, for some reason, in like the next three months, we grew pretty considerably. And we had a very full room on Easter, but I said, nope, I'm holding my guns, and invited everyone over. And guess what? Over 40 of you came to our one-bedroom apartment. It was nuts, and my wife wanted to kill me. But here's the deal. Whenever someone gets angry with me for over-inviting, I just go like, I'm just doing what the early Christians did. I'm just an Orthodox Christian. I'm trying to be a good person, right? So that's all that happens. But it was even more than just the over-inviting that the Pharisees were worried about. The fact that these Christians were saying that the Messiah had come, that the Messiah was here, could not be true if that terrible atrocity, that terrible, terrible, awful act of almost terrorism that had happened to the temple before it happened. This Messiah is supposed to be a redeemer. He's supposed to be someone that brings it back and puts it all back together and makes it beautiful. Why on earth, if the Messiah's already come, would something like this happen? You can't be right. You cannot be right. Get out. So the Christians are displaced, and that's who this book was written for. And guys, we're still kind of in the same spot, and that's the weird part. 
history really hasn't changed much because there's still a fundamental belief in any Orthodox Jewish tradition and even in a lot of Orthodox Christian traditions that if that temple doesn't stand, then there's no way the Redeemer will come. And for the Redeemer in their faith, this is the first time, and for us, it's the second coming, right? So there's still this weird sort of focus on the physical temple and the physical space and that physical city. But what this Pentecost thing means is really, really important here. It's, it's not about the physical temple anymore. It's just not. It's all right there. And the we- reason we can kind of really point to that um, is because of fire. But the new temple is, is here. It's in us. That's what the whole book of Acts is trying to prove. That's what the whole book of Luke is trying to prove, is that the new temple resides in your heart. You are the temple of the Lord. Paul believed this more than anything in the world. Check out these passages. Um, this is Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Um, Don't you know that you are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? If someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person because God's temple is holy, which is what you are. And then 2 Corinthians, he, he doubles down. He says, uh, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God as God has said. We are the temple. The new temple is us. And the whole crazy like world of Pentecost where they see flame and fire come down, to us it's just like, well, that's kind of nuts. There's like flames going up on the thing. But to these people, they had had a glory problem for years and years and years. In fact, that's why the Pharisees exist in the first, the first place, was because when they built this second temple, the first temple, like glory shone, there was fire, right? And this, it, it erupted in the same way that Pentecost happened. When they built the second temple, Ezra and Nehemiah, these two dudes who built it, nothing happened. It just stood there. No glory, no fire. And that's really important because the burning bush is what sets this whole thing off. There's fire. Then you have uh, Mount Sinai, and they, they follow a pillar of fire to Mount Sinai. And then when they get to Mount Sinai, there's this huge eruption of fire, and then there's an outpour of Torah. And they go to the tabernacle where... God would dwell, fire was there. There's always fire when God shows up. When the dwelling of the Lord is there, there's always fire to certify that like this is the spot. And at Pentecost, that fire descends on us. You are all filled with the most precious stuff. This is why we can't deal with all this violent stuff and we can't have it stand because every single person is a vessel for the most precious stuff. Every single person is a vessel for God, for the divine, for beauty, for good. And when destruction comes and meets that, we're decimating the temple. We're decimating something sacred and holy and good and beautiful. Can we get real fire and brimstone real quick? I come from a long line of Southern Baptist pastors, so I'm just going to take the training wheels off. When we talk about like the devil and hell and fire and all that good stuff, you know the closest thing I've ever seen to a devil is an AK-47. The closest thing I've ever seen to a devil is a weapon. The closest thing I've seen to redemption is the breaking of that weapon. That's what this is all about. It's about treating human beings with the dignity that they deserve and the love that they deserve. And violence has no space in that. And if we don't change stuff soon, it's just going to get worse and it's going to escalate. So what we're doing this morning is Bobby has painted this beautiful tree. And, and what I want to kind of press upon us is we in this space 
are adults. We're grown up. We are the roots of this tree. And our job, the job of a good human being, is to make things better than when we showed up here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to act as the roots, but we're going to watch before we take communion, the kids are going to come forward, and they're going to place their handprints as leaves all over this. We're going to celebrate the fact that the story keeps going and that we can make this better. The violence does not get the last word, but love gets the last word. And that with Christ, we can follow into something new. And we can support what's going to happen next. And that's the most important thing that we can physically do. And we have to start owning that in our churches and in our religious spaces. So if the kids want to come, are we ready over there? Yes. So they'll come forward. Um, uh, Omi's going to play one last song. Um, and then once they're done doing that, I'll, I'll come back up and I'll ask you all to stand. And then we'll take communion um, together.